This week, we bring back local parent educator Anne-Marie Reed to tell us how to talk to your kids about drugs and alcohol. And we also begin a two-part series on emotion coaching. I'm Nathan Dwyer, and I'm joined by my co-host Mark Bagley and special substitute co-host Ross Zimmerman this week on the Whatcom Dads podcast. Well, Mark, uh, Chris looks a little different today in my Zoom box. What do you think? Yeah, he's much more handsome today. Much more handsome. And younger. Yes. Uh, Maybe a little bit more tired looking. Maybe a little bit more tired because in Chris's Zoom box, we have the triumphant return of Ross Zimmerman joining us some 30 episodes after he graced us with his presence back in episode 18. Ross, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's really good to be back. So the last time you were here, you were asking us questions because you were a prospective dad. You were a dad in waiting. And subsequent to that, you had a son. Well, I guess your wife had the son, but you <laughs> you have become a dad in the last six months or so. So how old is Levi, Ross? Levi just turned five months old on October 13th. So we're getting into that stage where he's really maturing and uh, you can just tell that he's experiencing more and sensing more and yeah it's just exciting all around he's sleeping through the night which is i know mark made the comment earlier about sleep but uh to be honest chris at this point in his life may be running around and sleeping less than me so it feels weird to put that out there to the world but we're happy to report that he is a levi is a wonderful sleeper and he has been an absolute dream child from a fussiness, sleepiness, all of those things that new parents go through for the first time. So we're extremely lucky. Well, Ross, I think you should take my place on the podcast because obviously you're doing something way different and way better than I ever did. If your child is sleeping through the night at age five months, congratulations. That's phenomenal. All right, real quick. uh, Most surprising thing to you in your first five months as a dad. I would say the most surprising thing about being a dad is how every little moment or every small insignificant smile or laugh or giggle, whether it was intentional or not, or whether it was something that I did that I perceived as funny or anytime your your child looks at you with that face, like you're the, the coolest person or the most amazing person in the world. I knew I was going to be experiencing those things and I was excited for them. But the most surprising thing is how significantly different and how significantly better those moments are than I could have ever anticipated. Every time he laughs, every time he smiles, it's like I have to smile. And it's the the best thing that's ever happened to me every single time. And it's, it's crazy because you, I mean, you, you don't know what that feeling is until you experience it. And there's no way to know. Great. Well, I'm glad that you have returned and I'm glad to hear that everything's going well and just drop us a line when he stops sleeping through the night because uh, it, it may very well happen. <laughs> I, I truly, I truly am hesitant to, to tell people that and put that out there because I, I, I'm I not a superstitious it. person, but I, I, yeah, I don't want, uh, I don't want him to hear it and hear how excited we are about it just in case he's <laughs> like, well, I'll, I'll show you guys. <laughs> Well, we have a job to finish or almost finish. 
We started this candy bracket a few episodes ago with the top 32 Halloween candies, and we are now down to eight. We will cue up the music. We will see how things change now that Ross is pinch hitting for Chris. Chris had made well known his love of all things chocolate. And uh, so here we go in the final Elite Eight. First matchup, Twix versus M&M's. So, Ross, as the uh, as the guest this week, I will let you make the first pick on all of these selections and I will follow up. I'm not going to indicate who in this household is the culprit for this, but the Zimmerman house has been known to purchase the Costco uh, large size package of M&Ms on occasion. Um, So I would I would be remiss if I didn't choose M&Ms for that one. And I'm going to back you up right there with the M&M's as well. I'm voting for M&M's. It's unanimous. <laughs> M&M's moves on for a spot in the coveted Final Four. And speaking, <laughs> of, speaking of M&M's, Mark, did it surprise anyone when Chris asked you what type of M&M's you wanted and your answer continued to be plain, 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 and plain? Right. Why would it surprise anybody? I'm the plainest guy around. So, <laughs> <laughs> Second matchup. Snickers versus Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. 100% Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. I'm going to go 54% Snickers. Nathan Dwyer. Ooh, that is about as tough as it gets. I'm going to lean Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Third matchup, Sweet Tarts versus Nestle Crunch. I tend typically in my Halloween candy, I tend to tended to lean towards the more sugary, uh, fruity snacks. So uh, definitely sweet tarts for me. I'm a Nestle Crunch guy. I'm going to go Nestle Crunch. And I have a feeling what Nathan Dwyer is going to do here. Sweet tarts, sweet tarts. <laughs> yeah, you know, realize, Nathan, that if Chris was here, you would not have gotten that vote because you know it would have been too Nestle Crunch. Yeah, again, this Chris's absence today, for a very good reason, has uh, has really changed the outcome of this oh-so-important tournament. Yes, it has. All right, final matchup, the Almond Joy versus the Three Musketeers. I have to go Three Musketeers on this one. I think I'm going to go Three Musketeers as well. It's unanimous. Three Musketeers it is. All right, so we're left with... M&M's, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup in the top half of the bracket, and Sweet Tarts and Three Musketeers in the bottom half. Tune in next episode. We will do both the semifinals and the finals to crown the Halloween candy champion, Whatcom Dad's Podcast Edition 2021. Nice. Your life can change in an instant. Car accidents impact all aspects of your life and lead to pain and suffering, medical bills, and time missed from work. Robinson & Cole, attorneys in Bellingham, can help. They have represented thousands of clients since 1979. They also handle other types of injury claims, including workers' compensation. Consultations are always free and are available in Spanish. Robinson & Cole, when you need us, we will be here. 
right, listeners, we are once again joined by, well, I think I'll just call her a local treasure. Uh, Anne-Marie Reed is joining (laughs) us once again. She is a local parent educator. She's been uh, very helpful for our family. My wife has been in classes for a number of years, and she has a background as a pediatric nurse. So needless to say, if you haven't heard her on one of our other podcasts, she knows her stuff. So Anne-Marie, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you. My honor. So we thought we'd uh, come at you with another big, heavy-hitting topic, and that is how to talk to your kids about drugs and alcohol. I presume this is one that parents struggle with as their kids get into, I guess, middle school and high school years. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I guess I'll just kick off our questions with, when's the right age to start talking about this stuff? As soon as they start, you know, noticing, I think. So, I mean, I think you actually need to start this conversation well before middle school, you know, even in elementary school, like say with, um, you know, a five, six, seven-year-old. And not that you're going to go into tons of detail then, but you can lay that foundation that, um, you know, alcohol is for adults, right? And adults even need to be very careful with it. So it's an adult beverage. And is it the type of thing that you are continually coming back to over and over again? Absolutely. Absolutely. You take, you grab every teachable moment that comes up. So, you know, if you're watching some show together and there's some drinking on the show, you talk about that Um, and you can ask probing questions, you know, and so this could be an elementary age child. It could be a middle school child, Um, you know, so do you think that was using good judgment? You know, do you think, what do you think about that? I mean, just lots of probing questions. That's um, you want to raise a kid who can really know how to think for themselves. So, and you do that by asking questions. So if you sit down your kid to have the talk about drugs and alcohol, and we'll, uh-huh. we'll, we'll put those two together because yep. it seems like the same approach works. Do you have a particular style of how you would sort of lay that talk out with the kid? Well, some of that depends on the age of the child, right? So if we're talking about a younger kid, like, um, I don't know, let's say a seven-year-old, right? Um, I'm just going to say that, you know, that, um, I don't know, let's say there was a, uh, on the news or in the neighborhood, there was a child that was killed because they drove drunk, right? And so that would be a really great teachable moment, right? How sad, this is so tragic, it didn't need to happen. You know, that was against the law and there's a reason it's against the law, right? That this is, um, alcohol is for adults, not for children and tragedies can happen. So something like that, taking advantage of a moment like that. Um, And then my job is to keep you safe, right? And so, um, you know, being really clear that in our family values, you know, we don't use drugs and alcohol. And you would really want to make sure you're modeling this with your kids. So as an adult, if you have wine with dinner, that's absolutely fine. But you talk about it. You know, this is as an adult, I can do this. And I limit myself to one glass or whatever you limit yourself to, right? So you're modeling that for them. And when you're older, when you're an adult, you can make that decision. Um, You would model it with drugs too. You're not going to be, let's say you have a headache, right? I'm not going to jump to getting some ibuprofen or some Tylenol. I'm going to say, well, I think I'm going to lay down for a few minutes and see if I can get rid of this headache. And then if that doesn't work, then maybe I will, you know, try some Tylenol. So you're going to model that there, we don't need to jump to medications right away. We're certainly not going to overuse them. 
it's a good reminder. You know, I forget that kids are always watching, but recently, I think my five-year-old, we were out with doing something and they said, well, mom's going to drive home because, because dad had a beer. And so he had picked up on that, that that was sort of the general way that things work. He was watching and repeated it without us even knowing he was watching. Awesome. That's, and this is from a five-year-old. Yeah. That gives me goosebumps, Nathan. That's so <laughs> great. Good for him. Good for Ben. So, Anne-Marie, I'm just wondering, um, how do you feel about kids drinking with their parents if they're not 21? And I don't mean like having a party, right. but at dinner, having a glass of wine or something like that, if they're in high school, are, is that right. something that's okay? I personally would not choose to do that. Um, you know, I'm not going to, I wouldn't judge another family. Every family is a little different and culture comes into play with that too. You know, I mean, like, I'm sure they do something like that in France, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, but in our culture, I think, you know, it is illegal and um, it uh, we do know with, um, you know, research that adolescents who are consuming alcohol even if they're not getting drunk, even if it's under the supervision of an adult, it still changes their brain and permanently. And it certainly um, sets them up for alcoholism later in life, like four times as more likely to become an alcoholic if you are consuming alcohol in the adolescent years as opposed to waiting into your 20s. So, um, so yeah, I personally wouldn't do it. And Marie, you talked a lot about preparing your kids ahead of time for for these situations that they might encounter yourself or themselves in. What would you do or how would you handle a situation where a close friend of your child you have found out has been uh, using drugs or, or drinking alcohol and, and might be a bad influence with your own child? Yeah. So, well, and that certainly happened with my raising my guys, right? Um, it's I would just, I, I can think of one particular situation where we had an overnight party. We were, I wanted to be the house the kids came to. So I would do cooking for them. I'd go to Costco ahead and then have to go to Costco after they left too. So that's okay. <laughs> but um, so we had a, you know, a house full of teenage boys spend the night. It was great. And, you know, I, I you could, you could kind of tell the ones who were, um, maybe didn't have the support systems that they really needed. And first of all, I wanted to be a support for them, right? If they didn't feel like they had their parents, then there are plenty of other caring adults in our community that can really help these kids, right? So I wanted to be a, an adult that would listen if they wanted to talk. And, um, and I also, so I wanted to be the house that they came to and that they felt comfortable at there was no alcohol at our house for these kids. Okay. Just to be really clear, I need brownies, healthy brownies, not funny brownies. Right. <laughs> and <laughs> so, you know, I'd make all sorts of treats for them, but nothing, nothing that they shouldn't have. Um, and then I can remember talking to um, my son like the next day and talking to him about this particular child that I was a little concerned about. And um, he said, yeah, he, he knew that this kid did do drugs. And I said, well, how do you feel about that? And so again, tr trying to prompt 
um, discussion, open discussion without being judgmental. And then um, has he ever offered you drugs? And he said, yeah. And, oh, and, and how did you respond to that? And he said, well, I just don't do that. And he respected that. His, his friend did. So that spoke volumes to me that these two kids, my son and his, uh, you know, casual friend, they weren't super close. They were in band together, um, that they could respect each other and what they chose to do, but didn't impose their values on each other. But I, I made sure, certainly as my boys were more independent and, you know, going over friends' houses and as middle schoolers and adolescents, um, I, I, we did kind of role playing, you know, mm-hmm. so I would say, so what if someone offers you some drugs or some alcohol, you know, um, how would you handle that? And so kind of uh, preparing them ahead of time, because you know, this is going to happen. And then oh, yeah. giving them some good one liners, right? Like, um, oh, well, one of the ones that I told my boys was, you know, you can just say, my mom will kill me. And, and it would be absolutely accurate, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so you could, I mean, that would be fine. Um, I also, you know, I said, this would be a time if you wanted to, that you could do a little white lying. I'm not in, in uh, favor of lying, but to save face, an adolescent needs to save face with their peers. And so this might be a time where that would be appropriate. So, um, you know, they... I, I can remember talking to um, our middle boy and he was going to a party at a friend's house where there were going to be several adolescents. And um, the, I said, you know, so if it feels unsafe, if there's stuff happening there that you are not comfortable with, um, you can, you can say, Oh gosh, I think I'm getting a migraine or I think I'm coming down with the flu and I need to go. That would be absolutely fine. That would help him save face. And I also told him, I don't care what time it is. I will come get you, you know, yeah. that's never an issue. I've got your back here. So, and it's not like you're going to get into trouble. You know, I, my job is to keep you safe and mm-hmm. it would not be safe to stay in a situation like that. Right. So, Anne Marie, I'm just, I, I'm wondering, and this may be completely hypocritical of me, but, you know, I grew up in a time where marijuana was not legal. Oh, yeah. And um, I, I have a little bit of trouble with it being legal now and with kids being able to go to dispensaries when they're 21 years old and, and buy it. Should parents be as concerned about marijuana as they are about alcohol with their kids? Yeah, I think so. I do, because it's going to... Um, it can have similar effects. I mean, you certainly don't want your kid using marijuana and then driving, right? Mm-hmm. So they need to be of legal age. There's a reason there is that law. Plus, we don't know everything yet about the effects of marijuana on the adolescent brain. But my suspicion is it's going to be really similar as alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. That the adolescent, so adolescence is the second biggest time of great brain growth in the human lifespan. The first is Levi right now, Ross. (laughs) So it's prenatally to age three. I mean, it's amazing how much their little brains are growing and the connections that they're making. It's awe-inspiring. And the next time is adolescence. And Mm -hmm. so if we are interrupting that with um, drugs and alcohol, um, yeah, I think it probably will have lifelong effects on their brain. Yeah, I and for whatever reason, maybe because it hasn't been legal, I just think it's way worse than 
alcohol and that's just maybe just a, just a personal bias that I have yeah. and, 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 it, and it concerns me more when my kids talk about that than drinking. I don't know if this is true or not, Mark, but I have heard that marijuana is more potent than when we grew up. I don't know if that's true or not, but the bottom line is it is going to impair judgment right. and it's going to impair reflexes. Sure. And so it is putting them at risk, right? I mean, certainly with driving, but even in dating situations, it's going to put them at risk. And I think mm-hmm. that's something else to talk about with them, you know, that um, using <laughs> drugs and alcohol, um, you know, how are you going to consent if your mm-hmm. brain isn't thinking correctly? And what would you say to your child if you think they are using drugs or drinking alcohol while still living with you? How would yeah. you? So I'm going to try to be really careful. I mean, I definitely am going to bring it up, but you have to pick the right time and you have to do it in such a way that you're not going to put them on the defensive. Um, you don't want to, I, you don't want to overreact. You're going to say, how dare you do this? You know, you, I'm, all the work I've put into you or whatever, right? I mean, that is not going to be helpful. (laughs) So what I would do is say, you know, I'm really worried about you. I love you so much. And I'm really concerned about this. Tell me what's going on, right? And um, what can I do to help? How can I support you? You know, and and ask a lot of, what do you think would happen? What would happen if you did such and such? So Anne-Marie, any resources or books or articles you recommend for parents from age seven to 27 about how they can deal with this issue? I think, um, so I really do enjoy Dr. Laura Markham's work. And she has a website called ahaparenting.com. So A-H-A, ahaparenting.com. And she's got an article on there. So you can, she, her website is broken down by ages. So you can go to teens um, or uh, middle schoolers and you'll see her article there on um, alcohol and drug safety. And then she references um, the U.S. Government Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services website. Um, so there's one that's really specific to, um, around underage drinking and parent resources, including um, an app that you can download that guides you talking with your child. So um, it. Do you want me to like? I'll say put it. it out, I'll put it in the show notes, Anne Marie. Thanks. Yeah, and an app. I mean, great. I know. I know, yeah. right? Really There's an app usable. for that. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And it, it, it looks like it's really good. You know, very be able to turn around and use it pretty easily. Um, so, and then I, a really nice book, I think, for parents and teens. And this is not just around um, drugs and alcohol. It's just the teenage years. It's called Brainstorm. And it's by Daniel Siegel. It's actually a really nice book. Daniel Siegel is a clinical psychiatrist out of UCLA who does a lot of brain research. And he's a good writer. He's got a really a, several really nice books for parents. All right, Anne-Marie. Well, till the next time. Again, thank you so much. We'll link to the articles and books you talked about in the show notes. Hope to see you soon. All righty. Wonderful. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Great to meet you. Good Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye, Mark. Bye. Have me. a good night. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. One thing I'm really appreciative of is my co-hosts will indulge me from time to time. And this time I really took a big reach and I asked them to read a couple chapters out of a parenting book. 
And I picked a book that is based on a topic that I have found super, super helpful. And so tonight and on our next week's episode, we're going to take a little time to review and discuss the concept of emotion coaching as put forth by Dr. John Gottman, psychologist at the University of Washington. The book is called Raising an Emotionally Intelligent Child, The Heart of Parenting. And if you're not familiar with John Gottman, he's done a lot of work for the last, gosh, 35 years or so around couples and marriage and predicting successful marriages. He's got a research lab where he invites couples to stay for a weekend and his staff observe them and code the way that they talk to each other. And then he tracks them longitudinally over years and even decades to see if the marriage worked out. And he's done a lot of similar work with kids starting back, I think, in 1984 with sort of observing parents and kids and trying to figure out later on in life, those kids that were most successful, uh, what it was that their parents were doing with them that may have contributed to that. I gave you guys this book, uh, first couple chapters, initial reaction to having read through it. Uh, I know that, Mark, this is way out of your comfort zone, this sort of thing. Emotion and coaching both, both might be things that are a little bit foreign. So just sort of on a general scale, what'd you think? I, I, I really have a problem, and I'm sure this is not the intention of the author or any of these researchers, but whenever I read this stuff, I feel I feel really guilty and I feel like less of a parent because I'm not doing everything that they say I should be doing or should have done as a parent. And so I get a little, I mean, offended is too strong of a word, but it just it just doesn't sit real well with me. I feel like I'm being talked down to and I just really don't appreciate it. What if you had read it when your kids were toddlers? Would you feel any different if you still were in that space of trying to figure out what was the best way for you and your wife to raise the kids? Uh, yeah, maybe. I, I, just, I, I think my personality is I'm not. I'm just not this kind of guy. I never like the Myers-Briggs or the personality tests. I don't think you can really put people in these boxes or in these categories. I think that we're we're fallible we're fallible beings and we're going to make mistakes and that's okay that's part of being a parent that's part of being a person and I think that making mistakes helps you grow and helps your children grow and your partners grow and so maybe Nathan I would have been a little bit more open to it 15 to 20 years ago but probably not and that, and that's just me that's just the kind of person I am and probably, let me ask you this, if you're learning to play golf, are you the type who wants to figure it out yourself or have somebody tell you how to do it? I want to figure it out myself. I, I, I feel, I take it very personally when they tell me, you know, Mark, if you try this, maybe it'll be better. I'm like, oh God, I'm a horrible, I'm a horrible human being. I'm a horrible golfer. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a me thing for sure. And there's probably a book about it or something that can fix me. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I appreciate you saying that, that it just doesn't fit your personality type to have somebody... Um, sort of walking alongside you and maybe offering advice or ways to do things differently than what sort of your gut instinct is. Well, Ross, you've got decades ahead of you here. I know this is a little early to to start reading some of this stuff, but any first impressions from you on what you read? Yeah, specifically, um, my my son is not at the age where a lot of this applies at this point, but that's not to say that 
reading these things and learning about these different styles of parenting is not a really good thing for me to be doing at this point. It, it's, it's really nice to be introduced to all of these different styles and, and um, thoughts around parenting to be able to develop and, and create my own style that works best for me, that works best for Kristen, that works best for Levi. I get the chance to kind of select certain things that say, oh, this, this seems like me. This seems like something I would be strong in and do my best to apply those to my parenting when Levi is at the point where we are actually doing real parenting besides, you know, just keeping him alive at this point. Yeah, if it's not already obvious, I've drank the Kool-Aid on this John Gottman stuff. And I think there's two reasons for it. One is my wife and I have attended two of the marriage seminars, and we found that really helpful just for our communication as a couple, and certainly has given us sort of a toolbox or a set of vocabulary to deal with those things that crop up in a marriage. And so I sort of bought in at that level. Uh, But the second thing is the research he's done. I mean, there are 101 parenting styles out there, but I don't know that many of them have been tested over decades at a research university such as University of Washington and vetted and things like that. So I give it some credit and maybe more credit than it deserves, but just simply based on the research side of it. And and I was going to say that, Nathan, you know, and you make a good point about the research, but there are 101, 1,001, a million and one different, um, you know, perspectives and, uh, and theories out there about how to parent. And so I think you got to find what works best for you. I'm not saying that Dr. Gottman or if he's researcher Gottman, you know, isn't the right way, but it can be confusing because there are so many different opinions out there. Yeah. And I think if you implement one in your family and it's not working, well, then change it. Um, But I can say, and my wife's the primary driver behind this, that she's implemented this with our kids. And and again, in our small sample size of three, it seems to be working quite well. Mm -hmm. Would you both agree with Gottman's sort of thesis that the goal of parenting is to try and create sort of a moral, responsible, good friend, good citizen child who has high self-esteem and develops some sense of resiliency? Looking back at it, having a 25 and 22-year-old, I would agree. Also, being a good person, being a good problem solver. Um, I, like, I like the word resilient, Nathan. I think that's you know super important. But just to me, I think what Annette and I try to teach our kids is just be a good person. Be good to others. And if, if you are, it's going to come right back at you. And so, yeah, I, I think his thesis is a, is a pretty strong one. Ross? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I think I think ultimately that's the that's the goal of parenting is to be able to empower your child to be a, a well-functioning member of society that is empowered to do the right thing and say the right thing and act in a way that is going to be of benefit to them in the future versus acting in a way that actually hinders their ability to uh, grow or to become a, to become a a good person. So then the next part of the 
chapter, the next part of the book talks about, okay, so what do we do to try and get our kid there? And again, his thesis is you're intentional, you're purposeful in how you parent. And then here's this emotion coaching idea that his research, he contends, fleshes out as trying to help you achieve that goal. So just to sort of summarize the emotion coaching theory, and I do give Dr. Gottman credit in that he says in there, look, this doesn't solve everything. Uh, this, this emotion coaching is not going to replace discipline, but it's sort of a way to think about dealing with your kids. He basically says, you know, if you discipline or punish a child for some behavior that you don't like, you're not getting to the feelings behind it and as to why they're acting that way. He proposes if you can help the child understand the feelings that they're having, then they may be better regulated or maybe better down the road thinking about how, how best to make those decisions, which may not lead to that behavior. I think a key tenet of it is to say negative emotions are okay. Feeling sad, feeling angry, feeling you know upset. There is a tendency from a lot of parents to push those feelings aside dismiss them, tell kids, we shouldn't feel that way, invalidate the feelings, and that you may be able to solve the problem then, but it just sort of continues to recur and recur because the child doesn't have the tools to deal with it. So he lays out these steps to emotion coaching. And again, we would be doing you a disservice if you only rely on our discussion here. If you are interested, there's a Gottman website, there's the book, but here are the steps that he puts forth and discusses throughout the rest of the book. So first, you want to become aware of the emotion, aware of the emotion your kid is experiencing. I think just sort of like spotting the issue, figuring out something's going on underneath that behavior, that may be almost half the battle is discovering like what emotion your kid is uh, experiencing. And then the second step is realizing then that the opportunity to address that emotion with your kid is a chance for what he calls intimacy with your kid, a chance to talk it through get close to them, use this as a learning experience. And then the next step, which is also hard for me to do, is to listen with empathy and to validate the feelings. And the final two steps are then helping the kid understand their own emotion and then problem solving it. But in problem solving it, making sure that you guide them in a way that has limits. And that's discussed later in the book as to sort of, there's a parenting style where maybe if there's no limits on what the options are, that can become its own sort of can of worms. What'd you think of sort of that five-step process you laid out? I found it really interesting when he referenced, I'm obviously going to paraphrase here, but he referenced if, if a coworker or one of your friends came to you and was having a really hard time, you could tell that they were really upset. You would talk with that person and, and try to figure out what's going on. It would be, it would be really inappropriate for you to just completely dismiss the fact that somebody is coming to you with a problem or coming to you with an issue and to just say, you know what, I don't, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm, I can't talk with you about this. And it's easy to think about your kid if they're crying that they or they're upset that they spilled something or upset that, you know, their toy isn't working properly. It's really easy as adults to say, well, that is not something that is worth crying about <laughs> or getting upset about. That's, that's completely insignificant. But 
to them, it really is significant and it could feel the same to them as, you know, your friend who's having issues with their relationship or issues with their job. Like those emotions could be the same for those, for your child or, or your friend. So the first couple of steps I feel like are, are just recognizing that fact that your child does have emotions and they could be very strong emotions, even though you're not able to recognize that or to see it from their perspective. You just need to, to know that that is happening. And once you're able to recognize that, I feel like the first, you know, at least two or three steps in the process are kind of taken care of in that one, that one uh, light bulb instance, the light bulb moment. And then Mm -hmm. the step three and four are, are active parenting basically. And, and spoiler alert, uh, a lot of this applies to couples, right? Like your spouse or your partner could be feeling a certain way. And one of the worst things I've done is to say, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Well, it's like, whoops, uh, just started down the wrong road there. Uh, It doesn't matter how I think they should think, how they think is valid. And then once you come to that sort of understanding, uh, it sort of leads to more creative and collaboration when you're trying to solve a problem. And I've been trying to do this for six years or so, and I struggle. I mean, I don't have the patience much of the time, and uh, I am traditionally a fixer. I want to fix your problem instead of just listen to you talk about it. And so you really have to be intentional. And I guess to kind of go back to my, would you take a golf lesson analogy? You have to practice this. Uh, It doesn't come naturally to most of us. Well, this is a good sort of intro to the topic. Uh, Next week, we'll spend a little time going over the four parenting styles that Dr. Gottman puts forth in the book. So guys, thanks for your participation and your honesty about this sort of foreign concept. And again, thank you for indulging me in reading a couple chapters in a book. Happy to do it. Thanks again to Anne-Marie Reed. And thanks to our sponsor, Robinson & Cole Attorneys. You can reach the show through our Facebook page or email us at whatcomedadspodcast at gmail.com. Next week, we finish up our discussion on emotion coaching, and we'll be joined by Mark's kids who will provide a unique perspective on parenting as two young adults in their 20s. Why didn't the pepper practice archery? I don't know why. It didn't habanero. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So uh, did you guys hear about the chameleon who couldn't change color? No. He had a reptile dysfunction. (laughs) (laughs) Why do vampires always seem sick? Why? Because they're always coughing. Oh, good Halloween joke. Yep.